Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Welcome, everybody. Anybody here for the first time tonight? Welcome, 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 everybody. Welcome, everybody at home that's logging on for the first time. Before we meditate, uh, one of the core functions of uh, Buddhism and a meditation center like this, and one of the things that I'm going to talk about tonight is the importance of community and connecting with other uh, meditators and, and having friendships and developing relationships with people who have similar values and intentions and aspirations and ethics and uh, as you do. And it can be quite hard to uh, find those people out in this world. But these are the kind of places where you do find each other, where we're together for a common purpose of training our minds, trying to develop more wisdom, more compassion. So take a moment and introduce yourself to some of the people around you respecting social distance uh, etiquette. But say hello to some people. And I'm going to throw you guys at home into some breakout rooms. You can say hello to some of the people in your breakout rooms. There you go. I encourage you to say yes. It'll come on your screen. Join the group. Say hello to some people.
Okay, welcome back. We'll begin with a 30-minute meditation. I'll offer some instructions for uh, anybody that's new to meditation practice, um, kind of basic mindfulness today with an attitude of loving kindness. So find a way to sit upright and relaxed. Take a moment to adjust your posture to come into stillness. Allowing our eyes to close, bringing present time awareness into the body. Feeling the sensation of sitting, sensation the breath creates as it comes and goes. And establishing an inner attitude of friendliness or loving kindness, the intention to be patient, friendly, accepting of your experience in meditation. We're not trying to make anything special happen, just trying to see clearly what is happening, learning to respond in a wiser way to our present time experience. So allowing your attention to rest on the sensations of the breath, first few minutes, mindfulness of breathing, letting everything else recede to the background, the sounds, the thoughts, focusing our attention one breath at a time, just breathing in, receive the sensation of the breath, know that you're breathing in, breathing out, feel the sensation the breath creates at the nostrils, Know that you're breathing out. In this way, the initial practice is not to stop the mind, but to stop paying attention to your thoughts and give your full attention to the body breathing.
when your attention is drawn away from the breath, name what you're paying attention to now. Is it a thought? Is it a sound? Don't have a adversarial relationship with what feels like a distraction. Just name it, accept it, hearing, thinking. And then choose to reconnect the attention with the breath. When you notice tension in the body, whether it's a clenched jaw or tight shoulders, hard, tight belly, try to soften, release into the present time experience. Often we tense as a physical aversion, trying to suppress, avoid, resist something that's happening. Try to relax into it as much as you can, releasing the jaw. As you exhale, softening your belly. The breath can be a refuge, the present time experience, letting go of the past. Give your full attention to the here and now. 
letting go of the future, attempting to rest in awareness of the body breathing.
If you're pretty new to this kind of meditation, the breath is a very suitable focus. In the beginning, you can just keep coming back to your breath. Keep disengaging from the thinking mind. The Buddha said the breath itself, the body, would lead to transformative wisdom, insights. Teach you about impermanence and the impersonal nature, how this body just breathes all by itself. We also start to see how the mind thinks all by itself, even though we're trying not to think, it keeps going. You can choose to continue focusing on the breath, returning to the breath, remembering to soften. The teachings on mindfulness expand, many of you know, and you begin opening your attention to your whole being. All of the sense doors and emotions and thoughts. It becomes present time awareness, not just breath awareness, but the whole body, sound and smell, sight and taste. And we turn our mindfulness on the mind rather than ignoring it. Examine your own mind, investigate it. In the beginning, it can be helpful to simply label the thoughts as a plan or a memory, a craving or an aversion, a resentment, or a positive thought like love or kindness, forgiveness, appreciation. But simply observing the mind. And as we open to our whole experience, each time you find yourself paying attention, whether it's in the body or heart or mind, we begin to investigate the feeling tone, what's being perceived as pleasant. Right now in this moment, what feels likable, pleasant, good in your body? As you investigate the thoughts and emotions in the mind, are they pleasant or unpleasant, or perhaps neutral thoughts? Mindfulness of what's happening, what you're paying attention to, and how it feels.
more we pay attention in this way, the more we learn about our relationship to pain. Our relationship to pleasure. The liking, disliking, the clinging, craving, aversion, fear that we meet our experience with. We begin the process of letting go, of accepting the impermanent nature of whatever's happening.
Where is your attention right now? What are you aware of? How does it feel? And could you bring a bit more acceptance to it? Perhaps compassion, friendliness, So good to be back at uh, my Monday night class. I missed it the last two weeks in a row. Um, two weeks ago, I was home with COVID and uh, had a, like a you know a ten day retreat on my couch. Uh, and then last week, I was um, teaching a seven day retreat. Um, that we just got back from yesterday out in Joshua Tree. And I um, wanted to reflect tonight and talk about how uh, I came away from teaching this retreat, uh, reminded, re, re-inspired um, of just how powerful the Dharma is the application of meditation and, and the, the power and the potential that what we're doing has for um, healing. And um, by healing, I don't mean getting rid of illness, but I mean um, allowing us to meet whatever's happening in a healthy way uh, with wisdom, with compassion, with forgiveness and um, and I, I've done so many retreats myself uh, over the decades and I've been teaching retreats for a long time for over 20 years and uh, but like two years without 
a retreat. Maybe it's a little bit less than two years, but almost two years uh, with the pandemic of not being able to do retreats and teach retreats. And uh, so it was so great to be, uh, to have a week with the Sangha, uh, people that came to this retreat and, uh, and that privilege of, you know, being able to teach it and, um, and witness witness the transformations that happen and the insights that happen and the depth that people are able to connect with when they meditate all day, every day. And so the schedule on our retreats, um, this one, I mean, they're all a little bit different, but this one was there were seven sitting meditations every day um, of 30 minutes to 45 minutes every day, seven times. And then, um, uh, you know, an hour of instruction in the morning, an hour of loving kindness in the afternoon, a one hour Dharma talk in the evening, and then three meals a day, which were instructed to be eating meditations. And the whole retreat is done in silence. Uh, what we call noble silence, which is uh, not only not verbally communicating with anybody for this whole week, but avoiding eye contact and not reading or listening to music or journaling or doing anything that's gonna take you out of your direct experience here and now of your own fucked up mind. And being able to really see, wow, my mind has a mind of its own on such a deeper level. Like just sitting for 30 minutes, you get that, right? You sit here and you, some level or another, ask your, mind politely to shut the fuck up and your mind continues to think like how many thoughts came into your mind tonight and you uh, plans and memories and resentments and fantasies and maybe do some shopping and you know whatever your mind feels like doing um and so if, i just wanted to share some some reflections on um, how the Dharma works. And I mean, I sit in this place where like, I never really forget that the Dharma works. I always, you know, I get to teach all of the time I'm practicing. And, but there's something about the retreat where like seeing that process. And it's been a couple years since I got to see that process of um, deepening of insight, of the arising of, of wisdom in people's direct experience um, and, and the struggle. You know, and one of the ways the Buddha talks about the path uh, in, in the suttas is the, the struggle for awakening. And the reality is it's hard fucking work to be with ourselves, to be silent, to not have all of our, our distractions, to not have all of our, you know, coping mechanisms, we like to call them crutches, whatever we like to call them, um, and to just say, okay, I'm just going to be with this mind and these emotions and these sore ass from sitting seven times a day. And I'm going to learn to be with that pain and I'm going to learn to be with that uh, experience. And almost everybody on the retreat, you know, one point reports like this is really difficult. Uh, and then uh, at some point says like, I, I was having a, such a hard time and then something shifted. Something about uh, our own long-term in-depth awareness, which then shifts us into more acceptance, more appreciation, more compassion. 
And, um, and the experience, if you haven't had this, maybe it'll happen in your daily practice and in, in, in the world, in your life. Um, but on retreat, you get this uh, more opportunity for it to rise, more um, uh, time to just really pay attention. And, and what has happened for me a lot, and it's quite um, surprising when it starts to happen, is uh, non-specific uh, joy arising. And this, and I remember when it first started happening to me in meditation where I was like, why am I happy? Like, I don't have anything to be happy about. And, you know, and used to, and like, uh, usually like, oh no, like something cool has to happen to be happy. It has to be sensually pleasant or uh, some material thing or some connection with another person. But when you're meditating and then just sitting here, my knee hurts, but I'm experiencing joy in the midst of this. And nobody's talking to me. Nobody's giving me that special attention that I like so much. Nobody's, uh, you know, there's no, there's no sensual source of it, no material source of it. Uh, it's what the, the Buddha called uh, sukha. Um, and it's the opposite of dukkha. And, you know, dukkha is the first noble truth. And um, dukkha is the suffering that we're all experiencing. And so it's like, that's where we start the teaching. You start talking about suffering. Everybody's like, yep, I suffer. Totally suffer. I'm in. <laughs> uh, Sukha means happiness. It means joy. What did you, you laughed because it means something else. Yeah, in the Russian language, it means something else. What does it mean? Can I tell? Yeah. Bitch. <laughs> you know, you're just meditating there and then you just experience your inner bitch. <laughs> just for no reason. It just comes out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah, you love it. In what in what language? In Russian. Sukha. <laughs> Careful who you talk about your sukha to. <laughs> oh, love it. But you experienced sukha by hearing the word sukha. Look at you. You're like, wow, I love this. This is hilarious. This is joy. It's not like a bad word. Right. Like a, something like a, if something going wrong in your life, yeah. because you can say like it's a life. Sukha life. <laughs> so it's kind of like dukkha. It's like what we, in Buddhism when we're talking about the first noble truth. Like it should be more interesting because so close. But yeah, <laughs> totally. Rather than this is dukkha, as Buddhists might say, you say this is sukha, which a Buddhist would be like, well, what's wrong with that? <laughs> um, and reflecting on how uh, so strange, it's so simple, this process on some level. And it, uh, I don't know, intellectually, I don't even, it doesn't even make that much sense that all we have to do is pay attention. Mindfulness, paying attention to the present time experience. And so you're like, well, what's that going to do? I'm just going to see, what am I going to see? 
But as you do it, as you pay attention, as we pay attention, as humans pay attention to the present time experience, you start to see uh, what is going from a theoretical understanding of uh, impermanence. Like, you know that, right? Like, you already know everything's impermanent, right? Think anything's permanent? Have you had any permanent experiences yet? Anything still happening from when you were five? I mean, there can be some sense of like, well, I still feel I have a sense of self that seems permanent. Mostly that sense of self or that I am uh, is from a Buddhist perspective, it's due to a lack of examination. And that part of what mindfulness is, is a deep examination of like, let me investigate, let me look at my experience. And obviously, as we're doing in meditation, the experience is physical, right? We have these human physical forms. Let me be mindful of this body and the impermanent nature of what's happening in this body. Is it too cold now? I see people like, maybe we can turn it off. Could also use that as like a practice. Thank you, Tara. Uh, beginning our own attention, revealing to us the impermanent nature. And so it sounds so simple, but it's so profound because when we're not really awake to the impermanence, then we tend to cling. We want it to stay. All of our craving, our clinging is on some level because we forget where we're unaware, we're not being mindful of this is changing. I, I don't get to keep this. This being this thought, this feeling, this sensation, this mind state internally and then externally, this person, place, thing, relationship, it's all changing. It's all impermanent. Um, and how much of your suffering have you experienced so far in this life from trying to cling to changing phenomena, changing experiences, relationships, or craving for, I only want the pleasant feelings. And I want them to last. I mean, half of the people in our community, probably more than half at this point, um, became addicts from chasing pleasure, looking for a permanent high, looking for a permanent avoidance of pain. To the point, you know, it's like everybody likes to get high. <laughs> right? Everybody likes pleasure. But we're a community of especially degenerate people who, not, not, not everybody, but most of us, um, who just did it over and over, pleasant, pleasant, pleasant. We kept pushing that pleasure button, taking the drink, taking the drug, taking the, to avoid our pain, trying to manipulate and control impermanence, because we didn't know how to accept that pleasure is fleeting. Pleasure is impermanent. It is fleeting. And it's not a reliable source of happiness. Let that land. <laughs> this is the Buddha's teaching. This is so totally counter to our 
Western capitalist advertising culture that is constantly promising us happiness through a sense pleasure or a material gain. So the mindfulness itself starts to show us, oh, no wonder I can't hold on to anything because it's all impermanent. It's impossible to hold on to anything. It's impossible to create a permanently pleasant experience. Impermanence also, uh, you know, is good news when life is painful, when there's a difficult thought, a difficult emotion, uncomfortable sensations in the body. The more we wake up to the impermanence and watching people do this on retreat and just sitting there for out, you know, you know, session after session after session and knowing those people are fucking uncomfortable. And there's a bunch of new people on retreat, never. And they're just sitting there with their discomfort, watching the impermanence in their knees and their backs and their uh, shoulders, wherever the pain is manifesting during that fifth meditation of the day, during that sixth meditation, 12 hours into investigating the impermanent nature of sensation. And, you know, this is the Buddha's um, kind of promise teaching that uh, this is a liberating insight. As long as we're in denial or some sort of delusion about uh, permanence, about we'll continue to cling, we'll continue to suffer. Every, everything we cling to hurts us. Reflect on that for a moment. Everything we cling to hurts us in the long run. Sometimes it feels so good because you're clinging and it's like sustaining for a little bit. It's like you get that sweet spot with just enough cocaine. You get that sweet spot where it's like, no, everything's good right now. But how do you feel tomorrow? (laughs) It's impermanent, right? And then the craving is so repetitive of like, no, no, I wanna feel that all the time. So again, just I'm I'm um, just in this space of reflection on all we have to do is pay attention. Mindfulness sounds so simple. Turn inward, see the impermanent nature of sensation, see the impermanent nature of thoughts of emotion, and by itself, the awareness by itself helps you stop clinging. It's not even like the effort of like, I need to let go. I need to stop clinging. I need to, of course, there is that orientation and that inclining towards non-attachment. I was with this um, wonderful Buddhist monk a few years ago, and we were talking about teaching, you know, Vipassana mindfulness and, and how to teach it. And I said, you know, I'm often encouraging because it's what I do in my own practice, this inclining my heart towards my heart, my mind, towards non-attachment, towards compassion, this sort of intervention with the impermanent experience. And he said, you know, it's, it's okay to teach that way. 
And if, you know, in practice that way, he said, but my experience is that all I did was just give my attention, just mindfulness. He said, I just did deep, deep mindfulness. And what I saw was that all by itself, he said, it felt like over the years of meditation, said it felt like what happened for me. Awareness itself said it felt like I had like the, a curtain covering my heart. And the more I paid attention, this curtain just kind of slowly got drawn back. And that what my heart really wanted to do was meet the pain in my life with compassion. And that there was this natural innate wisdom that mindfulness just revealed. It uncovered, it revealed it, it pulled the curtain back. And my, this heart, for lack of a better word, this wisdom was, I just care about my own pain. And rather than meeting it with hatred, meeting it with resentment and fear, I learned to just be uncomfortable and my heart met it with compassion. And he said, when it came to, to pleasure, the, the revealed, the awakened heart that mindfulness revealed, curd and pulled back, understanding the impermanent na nature of pleasure, that there was just a natural, intuitive, non-attached appreciation. Rather than continuing to cling and crave and take hostages and complain and worry. And he said, just mindfulness revealed this non-attached heart, this non-attached heart and mind in Buddhism are interchangeable. You know that? That's, it's a very, I think it's cool. That the Buddha used this word citta, uh, which means the heart mind. Rather than your brain is the problem and your heart is all loving. The, you know, um, in Buddhism, we, we use it interchangeably because we understand that our psychology, our mind states, create emotion. And the, the emotion is experienced somatically in the body, but they're not two separate things. And this uh, tendency to create a duality of like, your heart is good. You know, he was saying it, it pulled back the curtain on, on his heart, on his chitta, on his wisdom. And it often does feel like it's in your body. Doesn't your heart kind of feel like this sort of central channel? of like kind of throat, like where you get choked up when you're emotional, you feel it in your throat, you feel it in your sternum, maybe your belly gets tight or relaxed or, so there is a physical orientation and we call it heart, but it's really, the mind is actually calling the shots all the time. <laughs> the mind is creating the emotions that the body is feeling. And then the you know, body is feeling the emotions and the mind is knowing, oh, that's what this is. Tight belly, oh, I'm afraid. My... Uh... Ajahn Amaro, one of my favorite teachers, and maybe he's been saying this for a long time, but I just picked it up last year, maybe two years ago now, when I was reading one of his new books, where he's saying the ideal 
uh, relationship in mindfulness is not, sometimes we think of mindfulness of like, well, I'm paying attention, but like from afar, um, like, um, like a detached observer. I don't know if it's feeling like that, like, like who's watching your breath or where are you watching your breath from? And it can, sometimes it can feel like, well, I'm this consciousness in my brain. And then I'm watching my breath down here. <laughs> this is sort of like looking down. Yep. The nostrils are having sensations. Yep. The nostrils are and it's all like the command tower of consciousness. I'm observing. He said the ideal way to truly be mindful is, is an embodied awareness that is uh, participating with the experience, that your mindfulness is intimate, that it's, it's uh, engaged, it's participating, but that it's unentangled rather than the feeling of um, taking it all so personal and being so uh, attached to and entangled with the body. Like I am the body breathing. So mindfulness actually knows the body. It's that part of us that's aware and that's not so entangled with the I am, but it knows there's a body here and the body is breathing. The body is feeling sensations head to toe, the body is experiencing emotions. And even the way that I, uh, what is the kind of passive, the body rather than my body, rather than it's who we are. It's that unentangled, like, yep, it's my body, but mindfulness sees it as a body, as the body, rather than taking it so much as I and me and mine. And there's something about, because the un, untrained mind, the untrained heart is tangled. Doesn't it feel like that to you if you're new to meditation? You're like, like, I'm this body, I'm these emotions, I'm this mind. When we start the investigation, there's a natural entanglement that's just natural to humans. See you guys. Thanks for coming. See you next time. Um, there's a natural entanglement. Taking everything personal is natural. It's not your fault. Does that make sense? Is that your experience? It certainly uh, was my experience that before meditation, I just was like, it's my mind. It's my body. It's my, uh, this is who I am. And gradually over bringing present time awareness, bring, being mindful, there's this like loosening of the identity, uh, of the entanglement. So I'm often in the, I don't think I did it tonight, but often in the meditation instructions, encouraging like try to develop this unentangled awareness of what's happening here and now and how it feels. But the retreat was this sort of reminder of we can't really make that happen, but it will happen all by itself if you meditate enough. If you don't meditate enough, it will never happen. You can't read your way there. No matter how many amazing Dharma books you read and cool spiritual memes you repost, <laughs> it's never going to happen 
without sustained long-term internal introspection, investigation, mindfulness. But it is guaranteed to happen if you continue to pay attention to your mind, if you continue to pay attention to your emotions with a non-judgmental present time awareness. And when it happens, sometimes there'll be sukha. There'll be this experience of like, whoa, I went from dukkha, suffering, clinging, taking it all personal. It's like there was something that curtain got drawn back and out of nowhere, for no good reason at all, there's this experience of, I'm happy. I'm content. I'm tranquil. I'm I, whatever. I, this feels good. This feels really pleasant. Now, of course, one of the traps for us meditators is that then we get attached to that and suffer about it and crave for it and cling to it. And that shit was good. I want more. One, you know, that was like my first bong hit. It's fucking delicious spiritual experience. And then you kind of, you can get into, and you see people doing this on retreat or in in your life where you're like, well, it happened at that five o'clock sit. So that's the sweet spot. Or it happened at dawn, right? The Buddha got enlightened at dawn. I'm getting up at 3 a.m. I'm meditating for two hours, chasing that pleasant spiritual feeling. And now we're clinging and forgetting about impermanence. I cracked open a book from the monastery, the students of Ajahn Chah earlier to this really short and cool chapter from one of the monks who was talking about the time he got enlightened. And he's like, I was practicing so hard. I was a monk and I was, and I knew I was getting close. He's like, and then I got there and it was amazing bliss. And it was amazing tranquility. And the whole day I felt so great. And then uh, the next morning I woke up early to meditate some more. He said, and by in the afternoon, I was so mad. (laughs) And he's like, that was really fun while it lasted. And he's like, I was enlightened for like 12 hours. It was amazing. (laughs) And then impermanence that mind state didn't last and it went away and I started clinging again and I suffered again. Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese Zen master uh, who turned 95, you're still alive, turned 95 last week. Uh, I, I count him as one of my teachers. I did retreat with him and read his books in the early days. And um, one of the first books I read by him, a simple book, tiny little simple book. All of his books are pretty simple, uh, but deep. And as the Dharma often is, where it's like really kind of straightforward and simple, but there's a depth to it. Um, It's called The Miracle of Mindfulness. And it's kind of what I'm trying to uh, impart to you tonight that I'm sort of sitting with is like, wow, it's such a, like, it feels almost miraculous that just paying attention will end your suffering. 
And I guess, you know, sometimes there's that big question of like, well, why is it so hard to pay attention? Because it's so simple. The solution is so simple. Pay attention, don't cling. <laughs> By paying attention, you'll cling less and less over, the, over time. Um, but it's so counter, you know, our, my flag I've been flying for the last couple of decades. Paying attention is totally counter instinctual. This kind of present time awareness is against the stream. The stream is planning, is normal, is remembering, is resenting, is fearing, is getting all entangled in our views and our opinions and our preferences and our likes and dislikes. That's normal. Having the kind of awareness, sustained, present, training the mind, the monkey mind to be here. You know, Ramdas said it in the 1960s, be here now. And people were like, whoa, that's fucking radical. Be here now? How do I do that? Because it's hard, right? Like you're, you've been trying, how long you've been trying to be here? Be mindful, be present, be non-reactive to the present. Be more responsive. I want to meet the present with acceptance, with compassion, with friendliness. But there's something about our mind that's like, nope, you should suffer about this. You should take it personal. You should cling to it. And you should resent everyone for not providing all of your wants. The world, blame the world, blame God. It's God's fault. So the second piece, for the first, that's the first piece. Just the, the power of, of awareness, of mindfulness, the liberating potential of just present time awareness. The second piece is community, is Sangha. That's the second thing that I come away from. The You know, there was 32 people, 33 people on this retreat, and they didn't talk to each other for six and a half days. But you could just feel... Uh, and there's, I don't know, half a dozen people here that were on the retreat. And um, there's something about community where we come together on Monday nights. I don't know how well it works, but it works even on Zoom on some level. You guys get to look at the little boxes of each other and feel like, well, I'm not alone. There's 40 other people meditating on Zoom. There's 40 something people in the room meditating. Um, something about gathering together, of community, uh, even if you don't talk to a lot of people, even if you spend the whole week in silence of uh, some, I don't know what it is, energy or something. I don't, I don't pretend to know exactly what it is. Support, peer pressure, right? Of like, well, I better show up to that 37th meditation because everyone else is. Um, I better keep my eyes closed. I better keep my posture. So at least I look cool, <laughs> even though I'm suffering. 
Um, so some of it is that kind of like how often at home when you're like, okay, I'm going to sit for 45 minutes and then 15 minutes and you're like, fuck it. <laughs> I'm going to go do the dishes. <laughs> like, I'm going to check my email. But, uh, you know, but here, most of the time you stay, even when your mind's like, yo, you should split. <laughs> and on retreat, you know, even on retreat, sometimes people are, you know, your mind's like, yo, you should split. <laughs> But there's this kind of like, oh, I don't, you know, like maybe I should stay in permanence. Maybe I'll feel different. And on my first retreat, I kept going or not kept, but at least once went to the um, teacher and was like, I'm leaving. This is fucking lame and hard. And I had all of the, uh, my mind was just making up all of the reasons why I shouldn't stay on the retreat. And give you I was a 19 year old kid like fresh out of juvie and my dad's like well why don't you go to this meditation retreat and um and it was so hard and I went to the teacher and was like I you know I think I think I'm done like on the second day of the retreat and they used the dharma teacher trick which is like well you could leave if you want but you should listen to the dharma talk tonight and then after the dharma talk you know maybe make a decision and then you like I'm grumbling and suffering like okay i'll listen to the talk and then you listen to the talk or i listened to the talk in this case and got so inspired because it sounded so good like they're talking about freedom i want to be free but also like saying like yeah you can be free you can end your suffering but you got to do it by sitting on this cushion and letting your mind abuse you and not and learning not to take it so personal and um And I'm so grateful that I'd stayed and then I kept coming back to retreat and kept doing this process because everybody that's been doing it for any time knows it's just not a quick fix. And even those, even, you know, you go on retreat and at the end of the retreat, you might have these big experiences and, and then um, they leave. <laughs> you get enlightened for a day or two and then self-centered clinging returns but hopefully it loosens and my experience is that uh, over the years it starts to just become a little bit uh less prevalent and uh, my relationship to my mind relaxed a little bit and i stopped taking it so personal um so much of the time i feel like there's like a gauge in us and we all start at suffering, right? Empty or whatever we want to call it, kind of the gauges over here. And there's some suffering, right? There's something that brought you to meditation, some dissatisfaction, some difficulty, some part of you that was like, you know, I, I'm not as happy as I could be, or I'm totally miserable and I'm desperate. And I'm, you know, I'm not going to make it, you know, some of us come in from that, like, uh, desperation, some of you like fairly well adjusted and just a little stressed, the more, you know, there's a little bit of dissatisfaction, but anyways, we, I feel like we have this gauge and that every time we meditate, every time we do some renunciation, practice the precepts, um, engage with community, there's something 
about is like it's starting to slowly shift and it shifts in like you know such slow increments that you don't even notice it until a few years in you look back and you're like it's a bit better than it used to be i'm still suffering some i'm still a self-centered human that takes things personal and clings and craves and but my relationship to that self-centeredness is getting better my relationship to that clinging uh is lessening and that the gauge, you know, just keeps going over the months and years. Um, I don't feel like I said everything I wanted to say about community because I feel really, uh, I feel really inspired by what we're doing at Against the Stream. I feel really inspired by uh, just getting together and connecting and supporting each other and. Um, and how important it is to have communities where it's, suffering is normalized. I feel like so many people in the world are, are in these, you know, communities or families or whatever, that it feels like there's something wrong with you if they're suffering and there's something you need to do about it, or you need to be ashamed of it and hide it. And I just feel so inspired by seeing people get vulnerable. Um, towards the end of the retreat, one of the most beautiful things that happened was uh, one of the Sangha members just started crying about the recent loss of his father. And it was like the best Dharma with everybody in that state um, being able to connect and support and that there had been a, a refuge for we can be emotional, we can be messy, we can be vulnerable. We, we can learn how to feel our feelings rather than some sort of spiritual bypass. I don't know if you know what I mean by that, but this sort of like feeling like I have to be fake spiritual all the time and not, not, uh, not be open around like afflictive emotions are natural. And grief and sorrow is part of the package and that until enlightenment or even perhaps after enlightenment i was inspired to hear that when the buddha's best friends died and this was well into his liberation uh, he made a comment that was um, something like one time i heard it translated as he said without you know with this loss with this grief it's as though the sun has been extinguished and the, the light of those connections being gone feels like deep, deep grief. And another way that I heard it translated was that he said, as I looked out over the Sangha, the assembly, the community, um, it felt, felt kind of empty without my two best friends who had both died before he did uh, here. And that even in enlightenment, there's this feeling of sadness and it's appropriate. So um, mindfulness is so powerful and uh, it reveals impermanence and impermanence is the gateway to liberation. And we need each other to support us, to connect, to uh, encourage, to inspire the ongoing uh, momentum of our practice. 
and I'll leave it there and open to see if there's any questions or comments. Actually, I think I need to plug this laptop in. What are your thoughts? Jump in. So I'm from Coachella. So I made the trek all the way over here because I I do feel disconnected and kind of isolated down there since I've been listening and following this path for about a year now. And I've had a lot of experiences where I don't that I'm aware that I'm thinking differently, more so than like people that I hang out with. Better than them because doing feeling better in certain ways, and I definitely don't want it to go to my head. Mm -hmm. But I do feel like that there's a the talk about community. I think I was listening to uh, Jason Murphy mention it a while back. Is that it's very important to be around people that have the same mindset that want to do the things that you want to do, and it's hard. Because when you care about people that are still suffering, they're suffering things that you suffer with, but you're you're in a better spot to be able to see that and be mindful and you want to be caring, but you also yourself is suffering. I'm suffering and I'm trying to be better for others, but really I need to do it for myself. Yeah. It's so tricky. I appreciate your your reflections, and I think probably all of us have some level of that when you take on a, a path of whether it's Buddhist, you know, awakening or addiction recovery or, or whatever kind of brings you in. Um, very rarely do we have it much. It's not mirrored around us. We're, we're like kind of stepping out of our normal community of other people who are also self-centered, confused, suffering people. And then we're saying like, Oh, I want to change around that. But these are my people. This is my, you know, we call it Buddhist Sangha, but we all had our, our pre-Buddhist Sanghas, right? We had our, our friends, our homies, our crews, our cliques, whatever it is. Um, and it can be there, that transition into like, well, who are my people now? And how do I relate to my old, you know, people, my family? Like, you know, not very many of us are born into families that are practicing mindfulness, right? right? How do I relate to them? And maybe they have other religious stuff and they're actually judging our practice or, and I think it's pretty natural in the beginning to feel a little um, kind of isolated and disconnected. And especially when you're in a situation like, like you are, the, the question was, because uh, that's like two hours from here, right? Yeah, so two hours. Yeah. So, you know, when, when you're in a small community or if you live somewhere where there's not a Sangha um, and, you know, and then there's this other dilemma where a lot of people like that tune in or um, maybe live somewhere where there actually is a Sangha, but it's not quite the right Sangha for you. Because I don't know if you've connected with uh, Insight of the Desert and Palm Springs. No, I haven't. But um, it was I did get pointed towards like Plum Village in, in my therapy. Yeah. So it kind of like set the ball. The Thich Nhat Hanh community. There might be something out there. 
Um, and there's some meditation centers in the desert and that kind of in Palm Springs and stuff. But, you know, then there's this other dilemma, of, especially when you relate to like this against the stream, Dharma punks, counterculture Buddhism. And then you go to the sort of establishment mainstream insight Buddhism and you're like, I don't know if I can hang out with these folks. <laughs> like, you know, I'm desperate enough to be like, I'll meditate with anybody, but they're not my people. And, you know, like, and, and well, where are my people? Oh, there's a Sangha in Los Angeles that are my people. There's a Sangha in San Francisco or New York or, but I don't live in those places, right? Um, so that's a bigger dilemma of that feeling of um, disconnection. I mean, I, I hope that actually Zoom is helping a lot of people um, feel like at least you have virtual community wherever you are. You can tune in on Mondays as you have been online and um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Mondays and Wednesdays and Fridays for against the stream online. Um, in the long run, and I, that that piece that you were reflecting on, that I think is really important. Um, which is like, we might feel a little disconnected and, and separate from old friends or uh, family, but then the more we wake up, the more compassionate, the more friendly, the more actually connected we feel to them, even though without trying to change them, without trying to fix them, and they actually will start to love you more and be like, we thought you were really weird, but you've actually become kinder and you know, whatever you're doing, keep doing it. <laughs> You know, we like we like the you that meditates in most circles, you'll find, you know, that um, ultimately the practice will lead us to an experience of interconnection rather than feeling separate. We'll feel connected to everyone, the meditators and the non-meditators. I think that that's, that's true and important to have some community important to find your people, even if it means that you have to travel, even if it means uh, some people have actually moved to be like, hey, there's a community there. I'm going to move there. Those are, that's where I want to, you know, I mean, it, I think it's probably a little unfortunate that I'm so fucking bougie that I set up in Venice and it's like the most expensive place ever to live so it's like yeah i would if i could fucking afford it i'd be living on the street with everybody else um so you know it's not quite as accessible you know and even as i'm like yeah la san francisco new york you know all of the most expensive you know if you move to one of the most expensive cities on the planet you can have some cool community um I'm gonna take a question online or a comment. Amy, jump in. Thanks, Noah. And thanks for um, thanks for retreat. It was great. Um, I just wanted to observe that when we did the closing ceremony, so we all we went around the circle and walked around and nodded to every face. Somehow, I knew every frigging person's name in that circle, and we had talked for like three hours, seven days ago, and what, 16 hours at the end of retreat? I was like, how do I know all these people's faces and names? It was amazing. And that sense of community and just sitting in the same room together, even not talking and not, but yeah, it was great. So yeah, 
Thanks. Grateful. I've sometimes reflected that maybe the end of a, a retreat like that, uh, one of the reasons we bond so much is because we all just like survived. <laughs> we all just like lived through this ordeal together of living with our own minds and doing the sitting and the walking and the sitting and the walking. And there's this like trauma bond or something. <laughs> like, fucking, yeah, you survived too. So did I. It's amazing. You had a little bit of suka for a minute there. Me too. The rest of it was duka, 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 duka. I'm sure it had something to do with the playlist too. And our dance party. Yeah. Um, there was a hand back there. Yeah, please. Jennifer, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I'm going to share a little bit about or talk a little bit about it. Um, I've been sitting in these rooms for three months, literally sitting here going, that will never be me. These people are full of shit. You know, like, really like judging so keep coming back kept coming back you know? <laughs> <laughs> like i heard something the way sitting here for three months confess you were talking inquiry inquiry you know what i'm talking about you know and and i went on the retreat and it was the most incredible experience like i never thought that my head stopped to that degree as it did last week, like it was, <laughs> it was insane. And then the thoughts, you know, and one of the most amazing things that like, you know, I, I came here because I kept busy so I didn't have to pay attention to whatever, right? But what I realized when I was at the retreat is like, I've never thought so deeply because I was quiet for so long. I never thought so deeply and then when I what I discovered wasn't scary at all. And all this fear of busying myself because of fear of finding out or the unknown, it would just turn out to this beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you know, I got on the plane, I got on Alaska on the way home. Mm -hmm. Like, this shit really works. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, what else I So, you know, yeah, it, it, I'm like 24 hours out of it and I'm still. Thank you. And I think that what uh, you're saying is so important is that we come in and we listen to the talks and we think like, I don't know, skeptical or whatever, like maybe we should, everybody should just go, like go on a week retreat and that should be sort of your intro so that you have the direct experience and you see this is really challenging at times and it really works in a way that, you know, coming for an hour a week is going to take you years to have the experience that you're going to have in a week. So all of this is an advertisement. I have a retreat coming up <laughs> and um, I, I actually don't have any probably until the spring, um, but I will. The next year I'll have a whole bunch of retreats and I do it usually in against the stream spring and fall retreat. And it's, it's amazing. And I hope that a, a bunch of you uh, do get inspired to, to come or to come back or um, and was there one other hand? Yeah, Kat, please. Last one. Um, preface with like, I'm sort of on to myself. Like I, I know where this question is coming from. Um, and it's a two-parter. One is like, how good do you have to be meditating in order to see the change that we're talking about in this first part with mindfulness? Like, I, I see that this is sort of like me 
clinging to something or, or sort of chasing something. And then the second part of the question is the amount of experience that you have, how much variation do you find in your daily practice? Like, is it very different from day to day? Or is it like your active depression and it's the same no, there's um, okay. So I'll answer both, but I might have a, a counter question. Um, you know, part of like, what do you mean by how good do you have to be meditating? Um, which is just sort of like, like you said, you're onto yourself. Like, what do I mean by what do I think is a good meditation versus a not very good meditation? Um, there is some perspective that's like the good meditation is when you sit there and don't get up, <laughs> right? It's good if you do, you know, you say I'm gonna do 30 minutes or 45 minutes or whatever, and you sit there, no matter what arises, no matter how you relate to it, it's good, it's healing, if you're bringing mindfulness to what's happening. So that question about kind of good, there is, there's different types of meditation and we can misuse meditation to ignore, avoid and suppress or try to bypass what's happening. So what I'm talking about, the insight into the impermanent, the impersonal, the unentangled transformation won't happen through concentration-based meditations. So if that's part of your, it will only happen if we have a mindfulness of our whole being and we're not constantly just redirecting our attention just to the breath or just to the mantra or just to some you know kind of thing where we're focusing on one thing and ignoring the rest of the process of our being. Mindfulness is openness. You know this. So I'm just reminding. So the good meditation is when you're open to what's happening, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, whether your mind becomes tranquil or it stays fucking busy the whole time. Whether you're, you know, uh, totally disengaged from the thoughts or mostly in them, but you're trying to have that unentangled awareness of what's happening, accepting what's happening, not trying to change it, but trying to change our relationship to it. So that all of that is sort of good, right? That's what I think by good. Does that make sense for the first part yeah. of your question? Yeah. Second part of your question, um, for my own practice, my practice is definitely my mind states, my emotions, my, and I think even my relationship to them on some level are definitely affected by the circumstances of my life. For sure. Uh, sometimes that my life is going along pretty smoothly and I'm, uh, and I sit down and I'm kind of like, oh yeah, this is fine because my mind's not even that upset about anything. So it's much easier to just be unentangled when my mind is just kind of maybe has some discursive thought, but sometimes, and um, the last few years in my practice, have my mind has been quite, uh, felt quite threatened by the circumstances. And so often in meditation, there's a lot of resentment in my experience. And uh, so, and it definitely affects what it's like to meditate and on some level takes more effort. 
I guess maybe that's the answer is that in my experience, sometimes meditation feels really effortless and I can just sit here and observe the arising and passing of thoughts and emotions and have some ability to meet it with compassion and non-attachment. And then certain circumstances, big betrayals, big losses, big accusations, all of that stuff will get my mind going like fight or flight. Like, no, 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 you need to suffer about this. You need to really take it personal. You need to, you know, like, uh, and then it takes more effort to be replacing it with forgiveness and reminding myself to let go and, you know, doing long-term uh, compassion and forgiveness, tending to those thoughts and feelings and the real or imaginary enemies that are Mara, who, you know, is attacking. Um, so there's, you know, situational. Yeah. Okay, we can end there where it's, it's time. Um, class is done by donation. Against the Stream is a nonprofit organization. The support of the Sangha is necessary in order for us to continue doing this donation-based business organization. Um, we do have a lot of overhead. We have to pay $3,500 a month rent on this space, a couple of employees. Uh, hopefully I, I get to, you know, be supported as the teacher and, and founder. So be as generous as you can. So the suggestion is uh, $15 to $20 donation for Monday night drop-ins. If you can do that, please do it. If you have less and you can't afford, you know, 15 or 20 bucks, know that you're welcome here on Zoom, in person, regardless of ability to donate. Everyone's always welcome. And if you uh, feel inspired and, and willing, please consider becoming a monthly supporter of Against the Stream, where you just say, rather than this sort of fee for service, like I'm gonna give some money when I show up, I'm just saying like, I'm gonna give some money to Against the Stream every month so that it exists, so that all of the other people can come, even if you don't make it every week, even if, you know, so just support it as an organization. So to do that, you need to go to the website and become a monthly supporter, 25, 50, 100 bucks a month, whatever you decide to give. And that goes a long way to actually helping us pay the rent. It's, it's been a long-term goal of mine to have uh, enough monthly supporters to actually pay the rent. And that then the other kind of donations that come in are extra to kind of pay the employees and stuff like that. And we're not quite there. I'm not sure if we're anywhere near actually being there, but it would be great. So I'm gonna keep asking uh, and eventually maybe we'll get there. Um, that includes everybody at home, please consider becoming a monthly supporter. And I don't think I have any real announcements. I'm finishing up this four month course that goes through December. I'll start a new uh, course probably in January or February. This is like a, a three month study practice course. We will have a bunch of retreats next year. Uh, I'm still trying to secure the contract for the Memorial Day retreat, which will be a three day retreat. We'll have at least one or two other seven day retreats next year. Um, so just you know, doing the kind of finalizing with the retreat centers. And uh, I owe the song uh, some day longs. I keep saying, I'm going to do another day long, and I haven't done one in a few months. So probably won't happen, but maybe we'll see. We'll see. Um, may any goodness that comes from our practice 
and our discussion and our engagement with the Dharma be shared outward in all directions. May each one of us get as free as possible in this lifetime. And together, may we create a positive change on this planet. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.